Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. This is our second week in the book of Esther. And so just to recap for you, in Esther chapter 1, basically we got a portrait of a king. A king named Ahasuerus, or better known as King Xerxes. And what we discovered about King Xerxes is that he was the richest and most powerful man in the entire world. Uh, He was the king of the Persian Empire, which spanned over 127 provinces. Uh, He he had a 180-day festival. He was so rich. He had so many toys. It took him 180 days just to show it all off. That's how many toys he had. Okay? And after that 180-day festival, he had a seven-day uh, finale, which was like Thanksgiving for seven days which, with lots of food and lots of wine. And after he had too much wine, uh, he called for his queen, Queen Vashti, to come and to show herself off amongst all of these drunken men in this room. Well, Vashti was very courageous, and she refused to come to be oogled over by these men. And so instead of the king going to repent to her and to apologize to her, uh, the king gathered his, quote, wise men and said, what should we do? And the king and the the wise men were afraid that if if word got out that Vashti said no to the, the king, that wives would start saying no to their husbands. And so they said, banish her. Don't let her ever come again into your presence. And so he followed that advice. This is the context of Esther chapter 2. It is not a good place to be a woman. It is a powerless place to be a woman. And yet it is in this context that God will use a woman to accomplish his great purposes. I'm going to read as we go because I like the story to unfold for us. Um, So I'll read some and, and teach some as we go. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much. Uh, for the book of Esther. There is so much richness for us to absorb. You teach us so much about ourselves and the world we live in. But most of all, God, teach us about you. Teach us the wonderful truths about you. Today we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I wanna start verse one, looking at the corruption of the kingdom. Esther two, verse one. It says, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. In other words, King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, his anger had diminished. All right? It has been three years and he's no longer angry at Queen Vashti and he's no longer angry at women in general. And he's missing a queen and he wants the queen. And so he's longing for the queen, but he made an irreversible edict that she can never come into his presence again. And so they decide to start looking for a replacement. Verse 2, then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. 
And let the king's appointment appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young women and women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, at first glance of this story, we may think this is an ancient telling of Cinderella. There's a king, and he goes out searching for a queen. But this is not how the story actually goes. I, I mean, most children's Bibles kind of relate it this way, but this is not what the actual Bible says. Historically, what we know about King Xerxes during this time is he was characterized by historians as a sensual overindulgence. He messed around with a lot of women, including wives of some of his officers, which led to his assassination in his own bedroom. And so the king is a total womanizer, the type of man that you would want to keep your daughter 100 miles away from. And so he has set this entire kingdom into action to find a new queen whom he will not be faithful to. Officers are appointed in all the provinces to find the most beautiful virgins and send them to the harem in Susa, where the king was. Now here's the thing. Once a woman was sent to this harem, they could never again return to their family. They could never marry. They would, they would basically be a widow for the rest of their life if the king did not choose them to be the queen. They would live a lavish life, but a life of seclusion and loneliness. Now, if you were in the king's harem, there's a chance you could come before the king and he could look you up and down and say, I want nothing to do with you. And then you'll be banished for the rest of your life. Other women he would see and he would say, I want one night with this woman. So he'd have a night with that woman and then send her away. If he really liked that woman, he could call her by name and she could come out of the harem and come back to the king for a one night stand. That's how the king was operating. So for example, King Artaxerxes II had 360 concubines, almost one for every day of the year. And his harem was described as one of surpassing beauty and it was constantly being replenished with a gathering of virgins from the land. These women were herded like cattle. It was a legalized, institutionalized form of human trafficking for the sake of the king. It would ruin hundreds of women's and families' lives for the king's own sensual pleasures. It was a horrendous system. Now here's the thing, of these hundreds of women, there would be one woman who was the prize woman. And this prize woman would become the queen. And while she would not have a faithful husband, at least she'd be able to have children. And her children would be royalty. And so it was a prominent position. And this is what these women were hoping for. Now, not only were the women commodities, but so were the boys. In this chapter, we've already read it some, but there are these, thing, these, these, these guys called eunuchs, okay? And basically what a eunuch is, a eunuch is a boy who is castrated for service to the king. And it's reported that about 500 boys every year were castrated in service of the king. This was a brutal kingdom to live in. This isn't quite like Cinderella, is it? It's not quite how the children's Bible describes the story of Esther. It was a horribly oppressive culture that centered around a horribly oppressive king. Verse 5, 
It says, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So here's what we learn, is that Mordecai is a fourth generation Jew living in Persia. And he is living specifically in Susa, which is important later in the story. But his great-grandpa, Kish, had been carried away from Jerusalem when the Babylonians overcame Jerusalem about 100 years prior to this. And so Persia is really all that he ever knew, all right? Verse 7 says, he was bringing up Hadassah, that's her Hebrew name, that is Esther, her Persian name, which means star, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Okay, let's step back. So Esther is an orphan who's raised by her cousin. Maybe you could imagine something like that in your own scenario. But we get a physical description of Esther here. And whenever the Bible gives a physical description, it's usually for a very important part of the story. And I'm not sure anyone in the Bible is described like Esther is described here. Do you see how it describes her? It says, she was a woman with a beautiful figure. And she was lovely to look at. This was the type of guy that girls, sorry, the type of girl that guys would drool over. I don't know what a modern day example would be. Maybe a Kardashian. Okay. Verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. So Haggai was a eunuch, uh, and his, his job was to gather these young virgins and to make them pretty for one night with the king. Okay? And this, this preparation for the king took a year, as we'll see here in a little bit. Verse 9, and the young woman, Esther, pleased him, that's Haggai the eunuch, and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics, free makeup, yay, (laughs) and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace. And so Esther had seven personal beauty attendants just for her. Says and, and Haggai, the eunuch, advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. She was doing well in the race for the bachelor king. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Now, let me ask you, why would, why would, why would Mordecai say, don't make your nationality known? Why would he? Because... It's an anti-Semitic culture. It's a racist culture. And if she makes known that she's a Jew, it's going to hurt her chances to become the queen, potentially even disqualify her. Verse 11. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. The Persian kingdom was a messed up place. It was a brutal place, a godless kingdom. I mean, think about it. Could you imagine living in a kingdom where the power and status of men is more appreciated than their faithfulness to God? Could you imagine a kingdom like that? It's hard to imagine. 
Can you imagine a kingdom where men are more focused on accumulating wealth and toys and luxuries and excess than treating people good? Could you imagine a kingdom where older men will abuse younger men for their own purposes? Can you imagine a kingdom where women are judged by the shapeliness of their body and their beauty instead of their character? Can you imagine? Can you imagine a kingdom where women will sleep with men just to get the man to love them? Can you imagine a kingdom where people sleep together before they're married and it's no big deal? Can you imagine a kingdom where women spend lots of time and money and energy to have just the right body type to please lust-filled men in the culture? Can you imagine a kingdom where there are racial tensions and biases? Can you imagine a kingdom like that? It's not hard to imagine a kingdom like that because we live in a kingdom like that. What the book of Esther shows us is that while kingdoms change and kings change, people never change. In some ways, the first 11 verses describes a, a prequel to The Bachelor. If you've seen the show, uh, you know, this, this one would be The Bachelor in Persia. I think there's, but there's a handsome, powerful man who has women lined up in front of him. And they do whatever they have to in order to seduce him, just in order to get the rose. And why do they want the rose? Because they want to be loved. They want to be cherished. And maybe because they want to be famous. The American kingdom is not so unlike the corrupt Persian kingdom. We have politicians paying off adult movie stars and supporters don't bite, bat an eyelash. We have companies in our own community that have record profits and yet reduce their employee salaries by a third so that they can't even feed their own family. We have national news networks that only seem to hire the most beautiful blonde women in the industry. We have thriving adult entertainment industry, which generates $12 billion a year. That doesn't happen without customers. $12 billion is more than ABC, NBC, and CBS make combined. We live in a kingdom where nearly one in every five babies is murdered in the womb, where there's growing exposure to racial injustice in our country, where many boys have been abused by men in positions of authority. It hurts, doesn't it, to see how much our kingdom is like the Persian kingdom. But here's the thing. If we are honest with ourselves, we are not only sufferers of a corrupt kingdom, we are contributors to a corrupt kingdom. We can't look out there and blame everybody else because if you look with lust on someone that you're not married to, you are contributing to a kingdom of objectification. You know, we say, most of us would say we are pro-life, but in reality, we're only pro-birth because are we fighting for the lives of the elderly and those who are immune compromised? Do we care about them? We may claim to be against racism, but do we disengage from conversations about race or remain silent or do we just tell people, ah, it's just a figment of your imagination? I love our country, but if we claim that this is God's special country or that we are a Christian nation, 
I think we need to be careful that we're not being discipled by our favorite news outlet. <laughs> and make sure we're being discipled by the scriptures. That we get a clear understanding of what the kingdom of God looks like and hold that up against the kingdom of America and adequately and fairly critique and encourage the things in our community according to the kingdom of God. You know, I've become more convinced as I've had more conversations that a thoughtful, discerning, biblically literate Christian is going to be shunned by liberals for being too conservative and shunned by conservatives for being too liberal because we do not bow the knee to the elephant or to the donkey. We bow the knee to Jesus and use his word to discern what is good and what is evil, irrespective of what political party it comes from. And so here we see the corruption of the Persian kingdom and of our kingdom, and if we're honest, of our own hearts. Secondly, we see the compromises of the queen. Verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. Could you imagine spending a year of preparation for one night with a king. That's what these gals are doing. That was their significance in the world. Verse 13, when the young woman went into the king this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem of the king's palace. It's to please the king. Verse 14, in the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. And so the harem uh, has two divisions, okay? The first division is a group of virgins that are spending a year preparing for one night with the king. And uh, these virgins that are preparing as they prepare for the night with the king, they get to choose uh, they get to choose what they wear, what perfume they use, what makeup they use, things like that. And a lot was riding on this night because they wanted to be the queen. So that was one group, the group of virgins. And then there is the second group, which is the group of concubines. These are the women who had a night with the king and had been discarded and isolated to a comfortable life, but a life of seclusion with other concubines. And they could not come back to the king unless the king remembered them and called them by name. And if they were called back, they were called back for a one-night stand. This is how godless the world of Persia is. I mean, again, the, the, the connection is overwhelming. There are apps where you can swipe right, swipe left, swipe up, swipe down. I'm not sure what the swipes are, but you swipe for a one-night stand. Verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. So here's the thing. Queen Esther is the exact opposite of the most admirable attributes of Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti refused, at least in that moment, to be 
to, to, to simply be a, a subject of, of, you know, piece of meat thrown around for the pleasure of men. But Queen Esther here capitulates to the king. Uh, uh, she asks the eunuch, hey, what, 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 should, what would the king like me to wear? What perfume does the king like? What makeup does he like? She did exactly what the king would want. She completely capitulates to the king's demands. And the people love her. The men there love her because that's who they want their wives to model themselves after. A woman who will never say no to their husband, but will do exactly what he wants of them. And that's why it says, now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Why? Because she was completely compliant, unlike Vashti. You see, here we see a portrait of Queen Esther that you won't see in Veggie Tales. We see a portrait of Queen Esther that you won't see in many movies about Esther's. A portrait of Esther that we need to so desperately hear. Esther was a tramp. She was a sellout. Throughout the story, she will grow in godliness as we go on. But in this particular passage, what we see is she denies her relationship with God at, at Mordecai's urging. Don't tell him you're a Jew. Esther, like Mordecai, adopted a Persian name identifying with Persian gods. Esther did not stick out in this year-long process as being peculiar, which Jews were very peculiar. And so she did not obey the dietary laws or the Sabbath laws. Furthermore, Esther, in a year-long decision, decides to engage in fornication with the king. And then we will see she marries an unbeliever, which was a huge no-no, which led to a lot of problems in the Old Testament. To be honest with you, I'm not sure if Esther could do any worse. <laughs> she was a complete sellout to the culture around her. She had completely compromised her faith and her obedience to God. This portrait of Esther was so alarming to Christians that even in the first century, first or second century, they added a note in there that said, Esther announces she did not violate the food laws and that she abhorred the bed of the uncircumcised. That's completely untrue. But we're so uncomfortable with such a messy character. Now you may say, well, what did you expect Esther to do? That was the culture she lived in and there was a lot of power and, and, and fear to capitulate to the culture. But God calls us just to be faithful, regardless of what the culture is around us. If you know the rest of the story of Esther, you may say, well, if Esther didn't capitulate to the culture, if she did not make compromises, then she would not have become queen. And then she would not have been able to save God's people. Which is complete wrong thinking. And the reason I know that is because all you have to do is think back a few years with the book of Daniel. Daniel was not far from where Esther is. Matter of fact, he had some dreams of being in Susa. And Daniel and his friends were under tremendous pressure from the Babylonians and the Persians to capitulate to the culture, to do things the way the culture does things. And it was at the threat of their own life to be thrown in the lion's den, to be burned in a fire furnace. And yet, what did they decide to do? They decided to be faithful to God. And what happened? God raised them up in the empire so that God could accomplish his purposes through them and through their faithfulness. Christian, like Esther and Mordecai and Daniel, we are living in a tension between two kingdoms that's waging war in our hearts all the time. 
And we are constantly tempted to assimilate. And if we're honest, we often fail. And so just to recap, the corruption of the kingdom, the kingdom of Persia, the kingdom of America, which we contribute to, the compromise of the queen, Esther and Mordecai, are sellouts to the world. And Esther is also uh, a tramp. But finally, the most glorious, wonderful, beautiful news, which is that God uses sellouts and tramps to accomplish his purposes and to fulfill his promises. And we see this in what we'll call coincidences, okay? So look at verse 16 with me. It says, And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus and to his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than, any, more than all virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Despite Esther's faithlessness, God is still faithful. Despite Esther's sensual indulgences and moral compromises, God raises Esther up to accomplish his loving purposes. And we know God does this because of all of the coincidences that are happening in this story. Did you notice the coincidence that the king got so drunk he made a really bad move and decided to call his wife in? The coincidence that in that moment, maybe for the first time, Vashti finally had the courage to stand up and say, no, I won't allow you to do that to me. The coincidence that the king's men were so afraid of their wives that they issued this edict that Vashti could not come back. There was a coincidence that Esther was born drop dead gorgeous with a great figure and that she just so happened by coincidence to be raised in Susa so that Mordecai could be around. Was it a coincidence that the king gathered virgins before Esther got married? There are a lot of coincidences that, coincidences that lead Esther out of all the women in all the kingdom to become the queen. We see the same is true of Mordecai, her cousin, who again, I mean, was not doing well. He pimped out his cousin to the king. Verse 19 says, now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In other words, deny the God you're associated with. Verse 21, in those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, big, thin, and terish, Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king. Now, this is important. In the name of Mordecai. So she revealed the death plot in the name of Mordecai. Verse 23. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And then this is also important. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai, by coincidence, I'll put that in quotes, by coincidence, lived in Susa. So that he could, by coincidence, be in the right place at the right time to overhear this plot. Okay, it wasn't any of his strategy. 
It's by coincidence. And then he told Esther, who told the king, and he was given credit in the chronicles of the king. It's a, it's a writing, it's a book. Now, typically, people would be rewarded immediately for saving the life of the king. But by coincidence, the king forgot to reward Mordecai. And this is important because many years later, there's an enemy of Mordecai. His name is Hanan, and he plans on hanging Mordecai from the gallows. The night before, Mordecai is to be hung from the gallows. By coincidence, the king cannot fall asleep. And so the king calls for one of his servants to come in and read him the Chronicles, because nothing puts someone to sleep like history, I guess. But he calls him in, and by coincidence, out of all of the Chronicles, guess which one that person chooses? The story of Mordecai. What a coincidence, huh? And because of that coincidence, Mordecai is saved and he is honored. All because of these coincidences. There's a lot of coincidences, aren't there? What if none of them are coincidences? What if instead of being coincidences of chance, it is evidence of an extraordinary God working through ordinary everyday life situations? As my old pastor Jim used to say, coincidences are God working incognito. You see, just because God is not named in Esther does not mean God is not at work in Esther. And it doesn't mean that he's not the hero of Esther, because he is. God lines up all these coincidences to accomplish his purposes. You know, we want to see God at work like he was in Exodus, right? Like turn water into blood. That would be cool. Part the Red Sea. How amazing would that be? Like a, a, a cloud, a pillar of fire. Wow, that would be amazing. But is it any more amazing that God can arrange for all of humanity, all of these coincidences, without violating our free will in order to work his plan and his promises for his people? Is that any less miraculous? I'd say it's even more miraculous because we're stubborn, squirrely people. And yet he controls all things by his providence to accomplish his loving purposes for his people and for this world. You know, when I was in high school, um, there was a Saturday where for some reason I didn't have uh, football and for some reason all my friends were gone. There was tons of kids in my neighborhood. It was great. For some reason they were all gone. It was a coincidence, okay? And so I was super bored. And so I got on my bike and I just started riding. And by coincidence, I decided to go to this, this junior high that was just down the street from me. And while I was there, the, coincidentally, uh, some guys had gathered for a football game. And that's my love language. And so I went over and I said, hey, can I play? Sure. Um, by coincidence, these guys were part of a ministry called Young Life. And I started to get to know them. And they invited me to Young Life. By coincidence, there was also a cute girl who went to Young Life. And she invited me too. And so I went to Young Life. And over many years, I heard the good news of the gospel. And it was through that ministry that God saved me and drew me to himself. I went off to college at Missouri and and served one summer at a Young Life camp up in Minnesota. And by coincidence, I met this really pretty girl named Trisha, who is not like Esther chapter 2. She was much better. And because I married Trisha from Wisconsin after seminary, we decided to move to Wisconsin. And by coincidence, on a Backwoods website, which I don't even know what it was, uh, we, we found a church in Green Bay, New Hope Church, a great church, that hired me. 
by coincidence, there were two families there who have been part of PCA church plants in the past who wanted to help plant another PCA church. And so we planted a PCA church. And so if you want to know the story of how Jacobswell Church planted, it's because there's a football game at the end of my street. God lines up all of these coincidences to accomplish his purposes. And we can go further back if you want. Why did my parents move from Ohio to that street in St. Louis, Missouri? More, quote, coincidences. Is God not amazing to arrange all of these things to bring together his people for his glory? If you're here today, it's not by mistake. It's not a coincidence. God had brought you here for a purpose. Because God is arranging all things. And you know what is the most beautiful thing of all of this? Is that, sorry. Jacob's well was not only planted because God is sovereign over all coincidences, but because God uses tramps and sellouts to accomplish his purposes. Tramps and sellouts like me. How amazing is our God? Let me end with this. Um, you know, we talked about Rose Ceremony Bachelor. One of my favorite illustrations is about a rose ceremony. Um, it's by Matt Chandler. Some of you have probably seen it. He does a much better job of explaining it than I do. But he talks about how he had just become a Christian, and he goes off to college, and coincidentally, he sits down next to this six, 26-year-old woman uh, who has a child, and she's never been to church, never read the Bible, and so he talk, starts talking about spiritual things to her. And... Um, Anyways, they're talking, they're dialoguing. He and his friends are seeking to minister to her, to love her. And so one time they go over to babysit the kid. And, and when they're babysitting her kid, they find out later that she's actually going to be in an extramarital affair, okay? Well, he continued to minister to him, he and his friends. And one of his friends was going to play at a concert. And it was kind of an outreach event, kind of a bait and switch, to be honest with you. But it was an outreach event where there would be this music and then this preacher would get up. And so when his friend gets done, uh, with the concert, the preacher stands up. And the preacher uh, basically said, I just, I want to talk to you about purity, sexual purity, okay? And what he does is he grabs a rose and he holds it up and he says, look at this rose, look how beautiful this rose is. And he smells it and he, he touches, you know, the, the fuzz on it and the thorns and the beauty of it. And he describes how beautiful it is. And then he, he hands it down to the college students that are there. And there's about a thousand college students. He says, I want you to feel, I want you to smell it and, and notice how beautiful it is. And so they take it and they pass it around. All of them touch it. And so he goes on to teach this sermon that is basically just fear mongering, um, trying to encourage people towards purity. And then at the end of his sermon, his big crescendo is to get the rose back up and he gets it up and the petals are falling off and it's all broken and everything like that. And his big crescendo is, who would want this rose? Who would want this? He's trying to say, don't sleep around. This is what you become. And who would want this? And Matt said it took everything inside of him not to say, Jesus wants the rose. That's the point of the gospel. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus wants the rose. That's the good news of the gospel. And we do not have to wait for him to call us to come to him every now and then. He has called us by name. He is always available to us. He is the great groom for our soul. 
We are a part of a greater rose ceremony in which the King of kings and Lord of lords chose us not because we were the perfect rose, but even though we were a broken rose, a marred rose, a mangled rose, stained by sin and brokenness. Jesus chose us to be his own for one reason, because he loves you. It has nothing to do with anything you've ever done, but he chose you because he chose you because he loves you. And now we, the church, are engaged to be wed to the Lord. I was reminded recently in a book that, that on that great day when Christ returns and there's the wedding ceremony of the lamb and Jesus is the groom, when we come to that wedding, when we show up and we see all of these people, we're not merely a congregant. We're the bride. We are the bride that Christ cherishes. Are you frustrated with the world right now? Do you feel like you have no purpose or no impact in your day-to-day life? Christians, we live in a corrupt culture. A corrupt culture that we not only suffer but also contribute to. But the good news is that God has not given up on sellouts and tramps like us. Rather, God loves us and chooses us to be his bride and transforms us into the beauty of his holiness. And he daily, daily ordains coincidences all around us to fulfill his most wonderful purposes of redemption. Let's pray. God, you are so amazing. It just makes my head want to explode. (laughs) How is it that you could providentially work over not only everyone in here, but everyone in the entire world at the same time to accomplish your purposes? How could you love someone like me, someone like us? You are so good. We are so thankful for you as such a great God. And we are reminded now as we turn to the Lord's Supper of what you did to make a tramp your bride, to give your only son on our behalf. We are so thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.